Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. If you are able to grab a Bible, I see there are some around. That would be good to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, If you have a phone, I suppose, and want to open that up, although really you can't see anything on a phone, but... Um, it'd be good to have a Bible in front of you and open it to John, uh, to John, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll spend most of our time in that passage. Um, however, I have also, not that this should discourage you from opening your Bibles, I've put most of the passage that I'm going to look at on the screen uh, in due course. Uh, can I say what a privilege it is to be here uh, today? Uh, one of the occupational hazards of being a minister in a church is that you very rarely get to go to other churches because you've got to be in your own one every Sunday. Um, so I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, I was at Glenelg this morning, at City Light Glenelg, and here this, this evening. Uh, one of the great encouragements and uh, joys for me as someone who's involved in a church that's on about planting churches, that's Holy Trinity, is to be able to be in partnership with another church that's trying to do exactly the same thing, uh, not for the sake of, uh, I guess, trying to build an empire, but to reach the hundreds of thousands of people in Adelaide who don't know Jesus. Uh, so it's a real privilege to be here with you tonight. Uh, my hope this evening is that uh, I want us to think about a really tricky question. Uh, it's on the screen, obviously. I could never believe in a God who chooses some people but not others, um, because it's one that needs to be addressed. Um, if you're not a Christian person today, uh, my hope is that you'll come away intrigued to find out more about Jesus and what he has to say. Uh, but likewise, if you are a Christian, and I'm speaking at that point particularly to the members of this church, I hope to encourage you that in the week ahead you might have some things to be able to talk with your friends about. Okay, so that's my plan for the evening. Uh, why don't I pray and then I'll get us started. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that it's been written for us and for our salvation. Thank you that we have the chance to reflect on it and to see how you speak to us through it. So we pray this evening, remind us once again of your great compassion and mercy. Amen. Okay, well, as you know, there are fewer and fewer people who are Christian in Australia, uh, which means that uh, if you're not a Christian and you want to find out about Christianity, it's harder and harder to do so. Uh, Most Australians don't even know a Bible-believing Christian, which means, of course, that when someone who's not a Christian wants to find out, in some ways, it's a clean slate. There's a great privilege in that. We don't have to so much undo previous misconceptions, but start from scratch. If you've ever summoned up the courage to talk to a workmate, a classmate, a family member, a friend about your faith, about Jesus... Uh, Perhaps you've had the delight of being able to share with them that wonderful news that Jesus is the one who brings life. So, for example, John 14, verse 6, I presume is a verse known to all of us. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Great news indeed. So great, in fact, that Christians being Christians have done really daggy things like commit it to words, uh, to music, and start singing memory verses. Uh, Fear not, I'm not going to subject you to that kind of torture today. But of course, if you've ever told someone that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, you know in the back of your mind that awkward moment is coming when you have to tell them the second half of John 14. Because John 14 verse 6 starts with, I am the way, the truth and the life, says Jesus. But the second half, anyone know it? No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And at that moment, even as the words come out of your mouth, you can hear just how offensive that sounds in our current context, how arrogant, how intolerant, how dismissive of all other beliefs. Sure, it's fine for Jesus to say he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's really good and positive. But for him to also say no one comes to the Father except through him, that's very hard to hear in our current context. Because, of course, uh, 21st century Australia is a place where we pride tolerance, where there ought be no discrimination, where people ought be allowed to hold their own views. And there's something that's really good about that, but nevertheless, it sets the, the context into which we find ourselves. I mentioned earlier that I'm from New South Wales, which means, and I ought to say this up front, therefore, I think Aussie rules is stupid. I'll just say it, you know. Uh, yeah, so now the good thing is, of course, it means that you're all united today against me, uh, but I think Aussie rules stupid. I grew up watching rugby union, which I've subsequently renounced my faith in rugby union because the Wallabies are so awful, if you know anything about that, they keep losing, so I've given up on it. But you might have noticed earlier this year uh, the story that took place around uh, this fellow, Israel Folau, uh, one of the superstars of Australian rugby, um, a Christian man. Uh, earlier this year, uh, like many of us, even the news reached South Australia, uh, you might have heard how he was, and I use the word advisedly, he was crucified in the media for what he had to say about Jesus. He said things like, uh, gay people won't go to heaven. Now, you might take issue with the way in which Israel Folau went about sharing his views. He did it on Twitter. For the record, no good can ever come of Twitter. Can I just say that? Um, so you might think that he wasn't particularly wise in the way he did it, but my point is, is anyone surprised by the reaction? Of course not. That's the world that we live in, in which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through him. Well, uh, my goal today then, as I said before, is to try and persuade you that what Jesus says is actually good. If you're not a believer, uh, I trust, I uh, hope, but by the end you'll be intrigued to find out more about Jesus. If you are a Christian, then you'll have a little more confidence to speak of him. And the way I'm going to do this, just so you know, my plan, I'm going to talk about three things. Uh, firstly, I want to talk about the big picture theologically, that is to start with what the Bible has to say, not everyone will be saved. Uh, after that, I then want to try and come to terms with what I think is the critical question raised by this topic. Uh, what kind of God chooses some but not others? Uh, and then the last part of the talk, I want to try and help us reflect on the implications for us. Okay? So three points, that's where we get ahead. Uh, firstly then, the big picture theologically, not everyone will be saved. Uh, if you're going to say what something is, at some point you also have to say what it is not. So the example that I've given, Jesus says that he can save. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But you also have to say the second part. There is no other way in which you can be saved. Uh, and so with that in mind, I want to talk about three views of salvation, three common views of salvation. Uh, you'll find references to them, uh, I guess, kind of in the Bible, but more generally in our society today. Uh, I'm going to do this by trying to explain some technical theological terms. Now, one level you might be thinking, why is he doing that? Well, the answer is because I hope that at some point you will read more on the topic 
because, well, the things that we are trying to live out and reflect on today, Christians have done so for 2,000 years before us, so we might as well learn from their mistakes. And that means that if you want to read in this area, you need to understand the terms that are being used. And the three terms I want to talk about on the screen there are exclusivism, pluralism, and inclusivism. Exclusivism, pluralism, and inclusivism, three views of salvation and the way in which people are saved. Okay, let me run through each of them. Uh, The first view of salvation is called exclusivism. This is the belief that Jesus alone can can save. Jesus is the one who saves to the exclusion of all others. You heard that in John 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, But you see it most famously in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, if you're taking notes, I'm just going to read out one verse for you. It's one that you'll know well. This is where the apostles have been thrown into jail for preaching Jesus' name. Here's what they say. There is no other name under heaven and on earth by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. Exclusivism, the view that Jesus alone can save to the exclusion of all others. Okay, with me so far? I think that, that's relatively straightforward. It might be hard to hear, but it's relatively straightforward to understand. Okay, second view, pluralism. Second view of salvation is called pluralism. This is the view that there are many ways to God, what you might say, a plurality of ways to God. And you might have heard a variation of this. It goes something like uh, someone saying, don't all religions lead to God in the end? They might take different pathways, they might have different gurus, but in the end, don't they all lead to the same God in the end? That's pluralism. Now, I'm going to come back and reflect on what I think the big weakness is of pluralism in a moment, Uh, but before I do, I want to point out that most of the major world religions are exclusivist. They're not pluralist. So Christianity is one, Judaism is another, Islam, on the whole, is a third. Most major world religions don't teach pluralism. In fact, as best I can tell, the only people who teach pluralism are people who don't believe in any god at all. Which, at least in my mind, somewhat undercuts their right to speak on the topic. Okay, that's pluralism. There are many roads that lead to God. The third and final one, which is one that you might not have come across before, the first two I'm sure you've heard of, even if you haven't heard of those particular terms, the third and final one is called inclusivism. Inclusivism. This is the idea that, in the end, some people will be included in God's kingdom, some people will be included in God's family, even though they don't currently realise it. Uh, This is... Uh, Some examples of this you might find in classic Roman Catholic doctrine. Classic Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that there are such things as secret believers, people who will be included in the family under the Bishop of Rome, even though they don't realise it now. Uh, A different uh, example, which you might have come across, is if you've ever heard a Muslim person say, we're all Muslims, we're all Muslims, even if if you don't realise it, Uh, That's a variation of inclusivism. Now, actually, on that, I think they're just being a little bit sneaky, to be honest, but that's an example of inclusivism. Even though you don't realise it, 
people will be included in God's salvation. It's not as nutty as it sounds if you're sitting there thinking, how is it that I can be included in something that I don't even know about? Well, at one level, it helps to address one of the really tricky questions when it comes to salvation. Uh, What about those who don't have the mental capacity to call on the name of Jesus? Perhaps because of illness, uh, perhaps because of some kind of mental distress. What happens to them? Inclusivism is an attempt to try and deal with that really hard situation. But in the end, it seems to me that inclusivism, its big problem is that it seems to ride roughshod over who we are. It seems to say that people will be saved even if they don't want to be. And so in the end, I think if atheists are drawn towards pluralism, inclusivism is the nervous Christian's attempt to water down what can be the very harsh claims that Jesus makes. Ultimately, in the end, the problem with both two and three, with pluralism and inclusivism, the problem with both of them is that they remove the need for the cross. Ultimately, both remove the need for the cross. Because they say that if there is another way that you can be saved apart from through Jesus' death and resurrection, actually, he didn't need to die at all. Uh, To make that point, uh, perhaps most clearly, uh, from Galatians chapter 2, uh, here the Apostle Paul, it's in the middle of a longer argument, and I've just taken a verse, uh, I think I've used it fairly, but you ought to check the context to make sure that I have. But in chapter 2, verse 21, here's what the Apostle Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do you feel the weight of what Paul is saying? If there were another way for righteousness to be gained, if there were another way for you to be made right with God, Jesus didn't need to go through the cross. And so in the end, the problem with both inclusivism and pluralism is that they dishonour Jesus. They say that his work was a waste of time. Well, that's the first part of the talk. Uh, What I've tried to do here is uh, remind us of what uh, some of the big picture theological questions are that are going on. The second part then, what I want to do is focus in on the key question pastorally. And it's the one, of course, raised by the topic Uh, What kind of God chooses some, but not others? Uh, And the way I want to do this is by working through three core biblical convictions. Uh, You see each of them pretty there on the screen. Uh, God is allowed to do whatever he wants. We all choose to reject God anyway. If God were fair, no one would be saved. I want to work through each of those points to try and explain that main question. What kind of a God chooses some, but not others? Okay, that's what we can do at this point. So firstly then, uh, those core biblical convictions, firstly, God is allowed to do whatever he wants. Uh, To put it as simply as I can, the creator of all things has the right to do with his creation as he sees fit. Uh, Romans chapter 9 is one of the places where you see this, uh, verse 20. I printed the words on the screen, but equally if you've got your Bibles open or on your phones, you can see it here. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Here the Apostle Paul asks, Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
Now, it's a pretty blunt assessment of humanity. Uh, it's actually pretty rude at one level. It says that you and I, we're like bits of clay or rock or dirt. But the point that Paul is making here is that the one who has made us, it's his right to do with us as he sees fit. I'll give you an example. Uh, like most men, at one point when I was growing up, I had a fascination with Lego, or as you call it here, Lego. <laughs> Great fun, right? And this, of course, is not just boys, girls as well. Uh, you get that box, you open it. The first thing you do, of course, is you follow the instructions, right? To build the thing that's there. But, of course, eventually, after time, you chuck the instruction booklet out and you just let your imagination run wild. You're allowed to do that, aren't you? No one says you can't. As the owner, it's your privilege to do with what you own however you want. Now, I'm talking here about a bunch of plastic blocks. How much more so the one who has made everything from nothing by a word is he entitled to do whatever he wants with us? Now, in case you're reacting to that, thinking that's a pretty bold claim to make, perhaps you've misheard, well, come back a few verses in Romans chapter 9 to verse 10. Paul makes the same argument but uses a slightly different image. Again, you'll see the words on the screen or in your Bibles, Romans 9 verse 10. I hear Paul is talking about Isaac and Rebekah, some of the great heroes of the Jewish faith, and their children, Jacob and Esau, who were twins. Have a listen to what he says. And not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. But before the twins were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. It is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is pretty extreme, isn't it? Paul is saying, even before Jacob and Esau, the twins, were born, even before either of them had a chance to do anything good or conversely do anything bad, we're told that God chose one and not the other. You see some of the shock in that because uh, in verse 12, it's, we're told the older will serve the younger. The older child will be the servant of the younger. Now, I don't condone this, but in this particular culture, the way in which things were set up was that the firstborn was the one whom all the younger siblings had to serve. Now, I'm not saying that that's right, but that's the way it was. Clearly, that's being inverted here. Paul is making the point that God's choice happens even before birth. And that, of course, raises the question, well, doesn't that mean that God is random and arbitrary? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the start of Romans, uh, to chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. My first point was that God is allowed to do whatever he wants, so I come to my second point. All of us choose to reject God anyway. All of us choose to reject God anyway. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is one of those critical passages which explains why the Great Commission is so necessary. Have a listen to what Paul says, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed 
against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are, not, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles." What Paul is saying here is that all of us know about God. You see that there in verse 19 and 20? Uh, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, understood from what has been made. Paul is saying that every creature knows there's a creator just from looking at creation. And yet his point is, we suppress that truth. We suppress that truth, and in fact, he says, uh, verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like creatures. Paul is saying, even though we know about our creator, we would rather worship the creation than the one who made it all. So, What's the difference then between an atheist and a Christian? That's not the start of a joke. Uh, What's the difference between an atheist and a Christian? Well, in the end, an atheist is just better at suppressing the truth about God than a believer. Or to put it slightly differently, remember how I talked about inclusivism and pluralism and exclusivism? Pluralism, the idea that there are many ways to God, actually, pluralism says there are many ways away from God which is what all of us have done. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say that, to be fair, idolatry is pretty easy. It's pretty easy, particularly when, as we do, we live in this time, in this place, in 21st century Adelaide, where we have everything. It's pretty tempting to worship the creation rather than the creator, because actually our lives are full of so many good things. Especially here in Adelaide, there's wine, there is beautiful weather like today, there is housing affordability, there's no traffic, there's no convicts. Now, (laughs) I thought I should say that because when people find out that I'm from interstate, and I guarantee someone's going to do this after this service, when you find out that I was born in New South Wales, people will come up and say, we're free settlers here. Uh, To which my standard response is, I've developed this over many years, my standard response is, there's a good chance my family weren't on the first fleet either. Um, just, you know, uh, let you think about that one for a moment. Idolatry is easy because no one ever idolises bad things. You idolise good stuff. And we have so much of it. And yet, the Bible is very clear. Idolatry is just so stupid. Have a look at what Isaiah says in chapter chapter 44, verse 16. 
Here what um, Isaiah is doing is that he's talking about a woodworker, a carpenter, who's sourced some wood. Look at what he says he does. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the other half of the piece of wood, he makes a god. His idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my God. Now, of course, here he's talking quite literally about idols that have been fashioned, but of course, you don't need to have an idol that sits on your mantelpiece as some kind of thing that you bow down to. Idol isn't anything that you serve more than you serve the one who made it. Who, in the end, would be so stupid as to worship the Lego, not the one who has fashioned it? Well, there's three core biblical convictions. Firstly, God is allowed to do whatever he wants. Secondly, we all choose to reject God anyway, which brings me then to my final point. If God were fair, no one would be saved. If God treated us fairly, no one would be saved. Why? Because all of us have rejected God. All of us have turned away from him. All of us have ignored our creator, therefore no one deserves to be saved. Which simply raises the question, why then is anyone saved? The answer that Paul gives in Romans chapter 9, the fact that anyone is saved is a testimony to God's incredible mercy and compassion. Have a look one last time, Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Verse 23 is the key. What if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Why is it that God chooses some and not others? Well, because no one deserves to be saved. So if God saves even one, it's a testimony to his goodness and his compassion. And so to give you an illustration, and um, as I'm sure you know, the best illustrations aren't stories that the preacher has dreamed up in the week before. The best illustrations come from the Bible. So let me tell you about a story that Jesus tells. This is a story all about industrial relations, which for many of you might bore you, but just run with me on this one. Jesus tells the story of a man who's trying to build something and he needs some laborers. So one day he goes out at nine o'clock and he hires a whole bunch of people and says, come and work for me for a day and I'll pay you a day's wages at the end. And the men who've been standing around, unemployed otherwise, are delighted. They go and do their day's work. But at about 12 o'clock, uh, I gave it away there. At about 12 o'clock, 
the owner realizes that he needs more laborers, so he goes back out and he finds some more workers. And he says, come and work for me, I'll give you what's right and fair, but do some work for me today. And at three o'clock, he realizes he still needs more. So he goes out and he gathers them and he brings them all together. And when the day is concluded, everyone lines up to be paid to get what they deserve. Those who work the shortest amount of time, just a few hours, are paid first. They get a whole day's wages. And as they come out, I presume that those who are standing around who worked longer think, wow, if they got a whole day's wages, imagine what we're going to get. So the group who worked at 12 go in and they get paid exactly the same amount. And then last of all, the group who started at 9am, who worked all day through the heat of the day, assume this is a January in Adelaide on a construction site, they get paid the same amount. And what do they do? They complain it's not fair. Jesus tells the story in such a wonderful way, it kind of sets us up, doesn't it? He draws us in because, here's the thing, right? Every single person in this room is thinking that's not fair. Aren't you? I know, I'm thinking that way. The guys who work longer, they deserve more. But the point that Jesus is making in the story is that if you get what you deserve, no one would be saved. We've all turned away from God. What's amazing is that anyone receives his blessing. The story in many ways asks something about you. Who do you most resonate with in that story? With the guys who laboured all day long through the heat of the day, still to get what they deserved, that is, a full day's wages? Are those the people you resonate most with? Or do you resonate most with the guys who came in at the very end and received God's incredible blessing even when they had no right to demand it? Well, what I've tried to do today is remind us of the big picture theologically, that not everyone will be saved, and yet at the same time address that critical pastoral question, uh, what kind of a God chooses some and not others? So let me try and draw it all together then uh, with a few uh, implications for, for us. And you'll see what I want to do. I want to talk about two implications. Uh, first is why this doctrine is so offensive. Secondly, why this doctrine is so liberating. And then I want to say something to the different groups of people here. Firstly, to those who aren't believers, but then finish by saying something to those who are, to the members of this church. Okay? That's what I want to do to wrap it up. Uh, so firstly then, implication number one, why this doctrine is so offensive. Why is the doctrine that God chooses some but not others so offensive to our ears, even when we've heard none of us deserve his favour? Well, as I've reflected on it, I think the reason why it's so offensive is because deep down, every single one of us thinks that we're better than the people around us. And so we're more deserving in some way. Again, Jesus tells a great story. You'll see the reference there, Luke 18. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know how this story goes. Jesus talks about two men who come to church, a Pharisee who comes along and talks about all the good things that he has done for God in that week gone by, how he's fasted, how he's prayed, how he lives a moral and upright life. 
and the tax collector, who's painfully aware of his own shortcomings, so embarrassed, in fact, to be seen amongst God's people that he hides at the back and won't even come in. And the thing about the story is, Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes home from church right with God, not the Pharisee. Here's the problem with the story. Here's what's so hard for us to hear. I don't know many of you. I probably am not going to see many of you again, but I really, really want all of you to look at me like I'm the Pharisee. Like the person who's done lots of good things for God, who's given up their life for service, who's even moved from Sydney to Adelaide to serve God. Like, I want you to think well of me. Whereas Jesus says, if my concern is about comparing myself to others, I'm going to go home not right with God. In the end, it doesn't matter if you are a little bit better than the person in the adjacent seat. If we're all idolaters, what difference do you think that makes to God? When I was in high school, I had a high school maths teacher who worked out an ingenious way to deal with the problem of students asking for half marks. You know how this goes, right? Uh, sometimes in a maths problem, you've got to work your way through. If you get the last step wrong, you then go back and plead, but look, I got all the working right up until that point. Can I have half marks? <laughs> the maths teacher worked out an ingenious way of dealing with it. He said, I'm more than happy to give half marks, provided you always round down. Because his logic was, if you're 99% of the way across the road and the bus hits you, you're still dead. <laughs> Who cares if you're a little bit less idolatrous than the person next to you? If you're still an idolater, you're still turned away from God. This doctrine is offensive because it says... All of us are helpless. And yet at the same time, this doctrine is also liberating because in it lies our only hope of assurance. In the end, if your salvation depends on you and what you do and how good you are, you will never be certain that you have done enough. Not enough to earn God's favour, not enough to keep his favour. If any part of your salvation is contingent or dependent on what you do, you will never have any assurance in your life. By contrast, if the reason you are saved is because God has chosen you, you can be fully assured it's not about how godly you are, well, none of us can be anyway. Hear Jesus' great words of comfort in John chapter 10. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? 
He's saying that if he has hold of you, the Father has hold of you as well. And no one can tear you out of his hand. Not the world, not the devil, not even your own shortcomings. It's a lovely picture, I think, that Jesus is describing here. It's almost like that of a tug of war. On one end, there's Jesus and the Father. On the other end, everything else that's trying to tear you away, and the prize in the middle is you and me. Who do you think is going to win? It's the creator of all things, who made everything from nothing by a word. If he has you, he will never let you go. And in that, and in that alone, is our assurance. So, let me say something then to those who are here who aren't believers. Um, as Sam said at the, at the start, uh, welcome. It's great to have you here, particularly if you're here at the invitation of a friend, a member of this church. My guess is, at this point in this talk, if you're still with me, you're probably thinking something like this. You're probably thinking, well, that's all nice and well, Jeff. What about the people who've never heard about Jesus? If you say the only way you can be saved is through Jesus, what about those who've never heard his name? How can they be saved? What does that mean for them? Well, let me say a couple of things in response. Uh, the first is, uh, and this is going to sound a little bit cheeky, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, just in case you're not aware, I didn't make this up. Like This is not some kind of doctrinal belief that I or the church have invented to somehow protect what we stand for. If truth be told, actually, lots of Christians are, I mean, we're almost ashamed to say, we're almost embarrassed by what Jesus has to say here because we know just how arrogant and intolerant it sounds. We haven't made it up. This is Jesus speaking. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, he says. But what I do want to say is that Jesus backs up his words with actions. He backs up his words with actions. A little bit earlier in the John passage I referred to, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus says that the way in which he will save people is not just by talking about it, it's by actually giving up his own life in the act of supreme sacrifice. There is a measure of his love for us. Uh, and so the second thing that I want to say in response to this very fair concern is that the fact that people can't be saved without hearing Jesus' name is the reason why for 2,000 years Christians have given their lives to take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And that's the reason why, for 2,000 years, Christians have been prepared to sacrifice, to leave where they live, to go to other parts of the world, even at great personal cost, because they're convinced that unless you hear the name of Jesus, you cannot be saved. If you're here tonight at the invitation of a member of this church, perhaps they've been pestering you, nagging away at you to come to church. Perhaps they haven't given up on you. They keep doing it over and over again. Maybe you're wondering, why do they bother? Like, they know how I'm going to react. Well, the answer is because of their deep concern for you. They want you to hear this good news about what Jesus has done. And they're willing even to risk, if I can put it this way, they're standing in your sight. 
that you might hear of how wonderful Jesus is. So, if you're here today as someone who's been invited by a member of this church, can I ask you, talk to them afterwards and ask them, why didn't you give up? Why do you keep asking me? Because I can guarantee they'd love to tell you. Uh, And to the members of this church, there you go, I've just put you on notice. Get ready to be asked. Okay, third and final thing I want to say is if you're someone who's not a believer and you're trying to reflect on uh, what does this mean for those who've never heard, which is a fair question to ask, and I've tried to give some of the answers to that, or at least the start of an answer to that. Here's the final thing I'd like to say. Whatever happens to those who have never heard the name of Jesus, you are not one of those people. Tonight, perhaps for the first time, I've told you about what Jesus has claimed to do and what he says about how life is found in his name alone. So whatever happens to those who've never heard the name of Jesus, you are not one of those people. Can I urge you, please come to him whilst you still have time. Final thing I'd like to say then, and I want to finish by talking to the members of this church. What do we do at the end of this talk? If you are a believer, as we reflected on this aspect that it's God who chooses some but not others, what are some takeaways for us? Let me finish with two suggestions. The first is, I think it is important for us to feel the weight of knowing that there are billions of people who will be born, live their entire lives and die and never hear the name of Jesus and so cannot be saved. I think it's right for us to feel the weight and the burden of that conviction. And I guess I want to put it that way because if you don't feel that weight, if what I've just said just glosses over you, Well, perhaps it's because you're not an exclusivist at heart. Perhaps it's because, actually, deep down, you're a pluralist or an inclusivist. That you think there is another way to the Father apart from through the name of Christ. I understand there are some hard situations, some extreme scenarios that we do need to be able to respond to. But... I think the diagnostic test for us is this, to work out if we have succumbed to that temptation to give up on the exclusive claims of Christ. The best test is this. Do you ever suffer for the name of Christ? Do you ever suffer for the name of Christ? Uh, Because if you don't, perhaps it's because you've been gagged, you've gone quiet, You've been silenced. When was the last time that you suffered for the name of Christ? And not suffered generally, because everyone in this world suffers, but suffered for the name of Jesus. They hated Jesus. They hated his first followers. And the only way in which we can avoid being hated by the world is to stop imitating Christ. So that's the first thing I want to say. It's a sobering thing to say, but I think it needs to be said. And yet I don't want to finish there because if I do, you'll go away feeling perhaps guilty about our failures. And that's not what the gospel, the good news about Jesus, ought to do in us. 
So here's the final thing I want to say then. I want to urge the members of this church, don't be involved in a cover-up. Don't be involved in a cover-up. I thought to make this point, I'd give you a quote, not from the Bible, but from an atheist. Because I figured that's as good a way of me trying to remind you of just how important this is. Uh, some of you will know, or in fact many of you will know, of Penn and Teller. Now, these are the um, magician, weird ventriloquy type thing um, that you've probably seen. Uh, Penn is actually quite a, um, quite a strident atheist. Here's what he has to say on the topic. This is from someone who's not a believer. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelise, proselytise, people who don't talk about Jesus. I've always said I don't respect people who don't talk about Jesus. I don't respect them at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, atheists who think people shouldn't proselytise, who just say, leave us alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. This is more important than that. Don't be involved in a cover-up. This coming from someone who doesn't even believe what we do. And so then, here's where I want to finish. I want to finish by urging you to make your life matter. I want to finish by urging you to make your life matter. At Romans 10 verse 14, one last time. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? That the person who brings good news, they are welcomed and rejoiced over. I love the image, actually. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I love the image because, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I would like to have beautiful feet, and yet I don't. Uh, in fact, I think most of us don't like our feet. Uh, that's probably why we cover them up. Uh, when we were dating, my now wife used to laugh at my feet because uh, I have very long toes. She said I could have played the piano if I was more dexterous. Um, which I thought was particularly cruel. Don't you long to have, well, actually not just beautiful feet, but be involved in something for which the reception is eternal life? Isn't that what you live for? And one of the privileges of my job is that I get to go around to lots of churches. I get to meet Christians from all sorts of walks and stages of life. And the Christians who I meet, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, whatever is going on in their life, one of the things I love to find out is what are they excited about? What are they thankful to God for? And this won't come as a surprise to you. Um, not many people, when I ask them what excites you, say, oh, paying off my mortgage. I mean, it's a good thing to do, right? And you rejoice when it's finally done. But that's not what your life's about. Some people talk about how they've got a new job or they're looking forward to a new job one day. And again, that's something to be thankful for, but that's not what you live for. People don't rejoice over that. You don't rejoice over the football. 
I mean, it's nice when your team wins. Unlikely here in South Australia, but imagine your team... <laughs> so, couldn't resist. <laughs> and there's a delight in that, I suppose, but that's not what you live for, not as a Christian. I think, this is what I hear consistently, what people live for is hearing about other people becoming Christians. That's the thing that as Christians we long to be part of. That's the thing that if you come to church on a Sunday and you see a baptism or a profession of faith, isn't that the thing that when you go home afterwards, you look back and you say, that was a good Sunday. That's what it is that we live for, what our dream is. There are lots of good things in our life, but that's what life is about. It's the reason why City Light was planted. It's the reason, I presume, why City Light in North Adelaide was planted. It's the reason why, God willing, you'll keep planting churches for years to come, that people might hear about Jesus and pass from death to life. And I thought I'd finish just by showing you the campus ministry that I work with, the staff like myself who work with students to train them to proclaim Christ. Our desire is that every ESO might have the privilege of seeing a classmate become a Christian. Isn't that what we live for? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy, though we had turned far, far away from you, still you sent your son to bring us home. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his death and resurrection for us. We pray that you might give us courage, courage to be able to speak of his name that all we meet might turn to him whilst there is still time. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.